a lot of you guys have heard me preach before. I like to consider myself a preacher. There's a difference between preaching and like preaching. It's in the tone. Um, but sometimes um, the word of God calls us to be a little bit more of a teacher, not a preacher. And today it is the latter of those two. So today's definitely uh, more of a teaching component uh, rather than preaching. Um, certainly I'm going to preach at some points throughout the message, and you'll get that. Uh, I can be zealous for those things, but, but I see this as a very much more of a teaching time, teaching from the word of God as it pertains to the mission that God has called this church to. If you will, you have before you uh, three passages of scripture in your bulletin, as well as an extensive outline. See, there you go. The extensive outline shows you that it is a little bit more of a teaching time right now. This is something like, are we in class right now? It's like, kind of. Um, but I think it's going to be good. So if you will, would you follow along as I read the scriptures printed for you in the bulletin? Three passages of scripture. Luke 10, Matthew 28, 1 John 4. Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Hey, I need you guys to sit down. Excuse me. Matt, let's just start over. Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, that is, Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, Matthew 28. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Lastly, 1 John four nineteen: We love because he first loved us. Victor Frankl was a psychiatrist, a Jew, and a Holocaust survival. And following his time in Auschwitz, he penned a very famous book titled Man's Search for meeting. The book was the conclusion to Frankel's questioning of what caused only one in 30 to survive the Holocaust. He pondered this, what enables these individuals who survived to endure the meaningless work, the brutal beatings, the loss of loved ones, disease, and starvation? What is it that enabled one in 30 to survive? And his conclusion was essentially this. This is a summary. This is not his own words. The reason for those who could cope with their awful circumstances was a conscious awareness of their reason for existence. That is, they understood what they were called to do in life. Whether they knew there was a loved one waiting for them at home or that there was unfinished work to be done at home, those who had a reason for existence were able to endure the hardship of the camp. What is the what of the church? This is the question I'm seeking to answer today. What is the what of the church? So that in the midst of difficulties, trials, tribulations, that churches inevitably face, regardless of what they are, it is so important taking the, the lesson that Frankel gives us to know our what. So what is the what of our church? It is my conviction that if the church knows its what, 
than like the first Christians who endured great persecution that's written to us in history and how the church has endured incredible circumstances that would make you think that it's gonna shut down. If we know our what, we can endure it. And I think not only can we endure it or survive it, but we can thrive in it. So the what of our church, of Central Hope Church, is quite simple, memorable, and short. Be loved and love. I've come to see that this statement, to be loved and love, the what of this church, not only frames the what of our church, but it captures in many ways the what of Christianity. This phrase is simple enough for a child to understand, yet deep enough for the wisest of individuals to continue pondering throughout their life. Be loved and loved is accurate, simple, wise, and beautiful. And this morning, I'm gonna continue unpacking this statement further that we might not only have a solid understanding of our what, but we might have a conviction to embrace it in all aspects of our lives. Like I said last week, I spent the time uh, last week uh, focusing on uh, the function of being loved. What does it mean to be loved? And I wanna encourage those of you that are curious Okay, okay, I wanna understand this be loved and loved a little bit further. You can listen to uh, that sermon last week to further understand what we mean by be loved. But today, what we're gonna spend the vast majority of our time is the function of loving. What does it mean to love? What are we, what are we unpacking when we say that our what is to love? So we're gonna get into that. But before we do, we're gonna look at three preliminary statements that we have to have in the front of our mind before we can even begin to look at love. So three preliminary statements before we look at the function of what it means to love. The first preliminary statement I want you to grasp, and you can write this down on your notes, is this. Be loved and loved is rooted in scripture. Be loved and loved is rooted in scripture. What you can see and what I want you to see is that this phrase that we are calling our what, is a statement that's drawn from the three passages of scripture that we've just read. These three passages embrace the great commandment. You see that in Luke 10. Jesus embraces the great commandment, which is derived from Deuteronomy 6, which says the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Leviticus 19, where this idea of the love of neighbor is embraced by Jesus. So we have the love of God and the love of neighbor, which is established in Old Testament law. It's rooted in the Old Testament and New Testament. So that's the great commandment that we see. The second aspect of this phrase that we see or scripture that we see is what is known as the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Matthew 28 are the last words that Jesus gave to his disciples. It's the, it's the phrase that he said, this is what I want you to do. Go, therefore, make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We, have this, we call this the Great Commission because we're going on mission with God. We're, we're, we're co-conspirators in this great mission that God has called us. So you can see this, this idea of Jesus saying, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, which we understand is Jesus embracing in the Great Commandment. So his mission is connected to his commandment and then we have 1 John 4, 19, which is what I call the great comfort. And in this passage, we see that our ability to love is rooted in what? Our ability to first be loved. We love the very thing that Christ has called us to do. Why? Because he first loved us. So this is what I want you to see. It's rooted in scripture. These three passages of scriptures are some of the most vital scriptures to understanding the whole scope of scripture. And, and I know that that's simplistic in saying 
But what I want you to see, be loved and loved is deeply founded upon by God's word and great summary statements. Be loved and loved is rooted in scripture. So that's the first preliminary statement, that be loved and loved is rooted in scripture. But secondly, the second preliminary statement I wanna make that we have to see is that being loved comes first. Being loved comes first. It's not love and then be loved. Do what God calls you to do and then God will love you. No, it's God loving you and enabling you then to do the very thing that God has called you to do. We love because he first loved us. This is why in the phrase we have be loved that comes first rather than love and be loved. Be loved comes first. Be loved and loved. So that's the second pre preliminary statement. And, and, and this, this I, look, now I'm gonna preach, so just hang on right here, okay? The reason we refer to Christianity as good news is, is, is totally rooted in being loved first. The greatest need that all of us have to be in relationship with the God who created us was made possible by God himself, not us. Let us never forget that our sin and rebellion to God is the very reason we couldn't be in the relationship with the righteous and holy God that we are made to be in relationship with. So left in sin, we can do nothing about our relationship with God, but God, who is rich in mercy, sent forth his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to remove our sin by taking that sin upon himself, though he knew no sin. In doing this, Jesus paid the penalty of sin that was intended for us with his own body and his own blood on the cross. This atoning act on the cross by Jesus is the most beautiful and perfect demonstration of love that we could ever witness. It's love embodied. This is act of love is summarized by the Apostle Paul when he says, for while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because you've done something good, but because he loves you and he died for you even when you were unlovely. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And having paid for the penalty of our sin, he therefore removes the barrier that was in place between us and God, a holy God being with a holy people through Jesus. So now we can be brought to the one whom our hearts were made for, God himself. And having received such love, we now in turn can offer the same love to others. Be loved and loved. Being loved comes first. You need to know that. That's the second preliminary statement. The third preliminary statement before we understand what the function of love that we are called to by the scriptures is this. Love is a verb. <laughs> love is a verb. And I, I, I say this as, a, as opposed to a feeling. Love is not a feeling. It's not a quiver in our liver that causes us to move. And it is so easy to live in the world that we live in, listening to the music that we can listen to, watching the shows that we watch and the movies we watch, and believe that love is first and foremost a feeling. But love, biblically speaking, is far often a verb. The emotions that we see are rooted in the verb first. So the verb precedes the noun. I don't know the English rules, but that's what I'm telling you right now. Verbs come before nouns. Love is a verb, and that verb leads to those emotions. And it, it, love can be expressed in emotions, but love is first and foremost a verb. And so with the remaining time we have, we have I wanna look at this study of love, love as a verb. Now there are two components that we're gonna look to in terms of loving as a verb, okay? And you're gonna see this, loving God 
and loving neighbor. And you can see those two categories. This is ultimately the great commandment that Jesus has put before us. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, and then seen in Luke 10 that Jesus embraces. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's really simple. You want to know what your what is to love? To love God, to love neighbor. Got that? Okay, what does it mean? Let's dig in. We're going to look at three different ways that we understand the love of God. But before we do, I'm going to begin with an illustration. A few years ago, um, I was discipling some uh, men, and uh, I get really... Um, I, I just, I, I try to like base, uh, I don't, there's a big word I'm about to drop on some of you in your bed. What is that? It's called a catechism. Catechism is a great way to like learn question and answers and to learn deep truths through question and answer. And so as a part of my discipleship of these men, I'm like, let's go to the catechism. Let's just learn good, pure doctrine by asking some questions. And so the catechism that this church is founded upon and it looks to is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And there's a very famous um, question and answer from this Westminster Shorter Catechism that I wanted to address with this guy. And this guy grew up in a church that bases its life on this document. So I said, you know, what is, what is the chief end of man, which is the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What is the chief end of man? And he says, I know the answer to that question. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I said, well, great. You know the question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What a great start. And then I asked him a follow-up question. What does that mean? And he looked at me with a blank stare. I said, you don't know what that means, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? He knew the, he knew the question and the answer, but he didn't know what it meant. So we could say love of God, but what does it mean to love God? Now, well, here's what I love about um, catechism. We teach our kids, um, how can we glorify God and enjoy him forever? Kids, do you guys know? Any kids in this room? By what? By loving? Loving. And doing what? Doing God says. What God says. The children's catechism teaches the kids, how do we glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. It's a beautiful, simple way to understand the love of God. You'll hear this phrase, and we're gonna get into this in a second. You'll hear this phrase that love is a process of meeting needs. You've heard it from here. You've heard it from the pulpit. You've heard it from me in different settings. But the love of God is not a process of meeting needs. I'm gonna tell you that. The love of God is not a process of meeting needs. That's the love of neighbor. We're gonna talk about that in a second. But the love of God is something entirely different. So there's three things that I want you to see of the love of God. Three concrete actions, verbs, that you might know what it means to love God. The first one. Loving God means knowing God. Loving God, knowing God. To love God means to know God. Now, we don't magically love God because God requires us to do it. We love God because he has made himself known. If we do not know God, we cannot love God. And God has revealed himself in two primary ways. I'm gonna teach you this. Basic theology thinking. Two primary ways that God has made himself known through creation and through the scriptures. Great theologians will call it general revelation and special revelation. God has made himself known through the creation and God has made himself known through the scriptures. Let's talk about these in two different ways. First, creation and general revelation. How has God made himself known through the creation? Well, it's quite simple. Look at a beautiful sunset. Take hold of the view from the top of Pinnacle Mountain. 
marvel at what you see. Eat something that you love, a good piece of barbecue, a delicious piece of cake, and wonder who could make such an amazing thing. Who could put before my eyes such a view as the, on top of Pinnacle Mountain? Who can create such a world that when I walk out, the cool, brisk air hits my skin and I am revitalized? Who could create such a world? It's not by chance. No. There is a creator. And what we see from this world and what we experience from this world and the beautiful things that we have in this world, we go, there is a God and he is good. You see, you can know God from his creation. You can tell a lot about who he is by what he has created. We can know God. But here's the thing about creation, what we call general revelation. It's limited in regards to what we can know of God. You know, there are people that can look at this world and go, you know what, there is a God. But it's very impersonal. It's, it's, it's what's called deism. It's kind of like, there's a God, I just don't know him. So there's a limit to, to what we can know from creation. That's why we need the scriptures. And God in his grace and his mercy has revealed himself to us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And in the Old and New Testament, this special revelation of who God is, we are made known to the triune God, his being, his character, and his actions. God makes himself known in who he is, his being, his character and his actions. God reveals himself in his being to us in the scriptures as one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, this makes our mind hurt, but I encourage you to spend some time studying the Trinity. I am in the process of relearning the Trinity and, 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 and sitting in it. But what we have to see more than anything is this is who God has revealed himself to be. One God in three persons. God has made himself known. Who he is is being as one God and three persons. This is who God is. Secondly, God reveals his character in the scriptures. The scriptures say that God is love. And I just talked about this is love, that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. The love of God is seen to us in his, in his character. We, we can mean like this God is good. He brings sinners to himself. Like, this is a good God. He is, like we said in the scriptures today, we'll be reading Psalm 103, 8 and 14. The Lord is merciful and gracious. This is God who God has revealed himself. To know God is to love God. Do you know the God who is love? So to know him is to love him. Lastly, we know God through his actions. We know that God has revealed himself by taking on flesh and blood, becoming Emmanuel, God with us, and entering into this story that is life to redeem those whom he has called to be his own. We know God through his actions. We know God through his character. We know God through his being. This is what the scriptures reveal to us. This is why we study them and we read them to be reminded of who this God is, that we might know him and love him. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe in love at first sight? I don't. Oh, sure, there might be some crazy infatuation or lust for someone that stirs up when you first see them, but love? No. Love never comes at first sight because love requires knowledge. 
It's the same with God. And God, in his mercy, has made himself known through the creation and through scriptures. And in this process, we can know God and love God. So loving God means knowing God. You hear that? It's a verb. Knowing God. Friends, learn God. One of my favorite books that I've ever read in my entire life that I want to encourage you to go out and get is a book titled Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's amazing. It's, it, it can be terse and, and dense at times, but you will be blessed in reading about our God, and you will be moved to love him that much more. The emotional will follow the intellectual. So loving God means knowing God, but Here's the thing that happens when, when we get to know God. It moves us to this second aspect of loving God. The second aspect that we're gonna see of loving God is worshiping God. Worshiping God. Now, focus with me for just a second. Worship at its core is ascribing worth to something. It's giving, saying, saying you are valuable. Now, if you listen closely to the English word, you can hear this in it. Worthship. Worthship. Ascribing to God great value. And so, so when we when we see the God that He that, that, that's revealed to us in the scriptures, and when we grasp how 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 great a God He is, we cannot help but to ascribe this God worth and value. This is what it means to love God, to ascribe God value, to worship him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. To love God means to worship God. Now, one of the things that you will see in a church, and we'll do this in our church, but this is just a part of how we go about our daily life, walking in step with God, is that we worship God, and we do this in two simple ways. We do it publicly. I mean, you are here right now at, at a public worship service where we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to the God who has made himself known and we sing praises to him and we, 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 we might not be there emotionally, but we speak it sometimes and sometimes the emotions follow suit and it's beautiful and we say, God, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our affection. You are worthy of, our, our, of, 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 of all of our hearts. So we worship God publicly, but also we worship God privately. You know, every day we wake and the world hits us in the face, we do have evidence that God is a good creator, but we have also the scriptures, and God makes himself known to us in the scriptures, and when we see how he's made himself known, in the quiet of our own hearts, we can worship him. So we take time in our own heart to make much of God. It's not just a public affair, it's a private affair. So I want to encourage you to spend time in praising God in the quiet of your own heart. Find songs and hymns from, from, from you know, your iPod or whatever. It's not an iPod. Your phone, Spotify, whatever it is right now. Put it on in your car and sing praises to God. This is, this is what it means to love God is to sing praises to him in the quiet of your own car. Worship him. So the love of God means we know God, we worship God, but there's one final aspect we see scripture calling us to with regards to the love of God, and that is this, trusting God. Trusting God. So we know God, we worship God, we trust God. Trusting God 
This is huge, and I really want you to grasp this and understand this. If there's a time that I want to teach you and that you understand what the love of God is, it's here. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, that is trusting, it is impossible to please God. Faith and trust are the same things according to scripture. So when we trust God, we are acknowledging that God is God and we are not. We allow God to be God and not us. And this is what I want you to see. Trust, therefore, becomes the basis of our obedience to God. It's not obedience to get the love of God. It's trust that is followed in obedience. It's the same thing with my kids or your kids or whatever it is. When the command goes from our mouth to their ears, we're just asking them to trust us. Trust us, you don't wanna go to the edge of that cliff. And their obedience is based in their trust of my word. It's the same for Christians. Trust and obey. It's kind of connected, and yet we've disconnected them. And I hate that. Obedience and trust are deeply connected. We think that we obey or we love to be loved, but it's the opposite. We, we are loved, therefore we trust and obey. Do we know that? I'm gonna point out four common areas where we don't trust God, and this is intended to be pointed in your life, okay? I, this is intended. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just trying to expose where, where so many people do not trust God. First, finances. I don't care if you're rich or poor, and I want you to hear that. Rich or poor, money has the propensity to reveal what you really trust, where you spend your money ultimately reveals who and what you are trusting for life. Many will complain and say, I don't know if I can give 10% back to God, you know, which, is, which, which is often what we call a tithe. That's a lot of money. But in holding back often our money, what are we saying? I don't trust God, I trust my wealth. So finances. Secondly, relationships. Relationships. We think we know how to go about our relationships better than God. And so some of us, some of you who are single, you'll be tempted to, to enter into relationships that are not honoring to God. And you're gonna be tempted to do that and say, maybe I'll find life here. Or, or, or if you're married, there's potential of that too. You won't trust God in the midst of the difficult situations and trust his word and follow his word. So relationships. Third, time. We think our time is our own, but God's law calls us to rest on the Sabbath, and yet many of us won't do that. Now, how to do that, that's another question. I'm just talking to you about the Sabbath in general. You will work yourself into a tizzy rather than trusting that God is gonna take care of you. God is going to meet your needs, and so because of that, you can rest. Rest in him. Lastly, I think we can get easily caught up in our country. And we can trust um, the laws that are made, the politicians are in office, rather than trusting that Jesus is Lord and he's going to take care of what it is. And we can get caught up in the midst of it. I'm not saying, do not hear me say that we shouldn't be very good Citizens, I am not saying that. I'm talking about the emotional response that is prevalent in so many people in our society and in our church 
who take great emotional interest and will despair when things aren't going their way and be prideful when things are. What are we really trusting? Are we trusting politics or are we trusting the Lord? We should indeed search for that. But these are ways that we, we don't trust God. So loving God is trusting God. Those are just four pointed areas. This is what it means to love God. It means to know him, worship him, and to trust him. Well, let's, let's now transition to what it means to love our neighbor. The practice of loving our neighbor. There's just three different areas that I want you to consider in closing. We have the love of God. That means knowing, worshiping, and trusting him. But the love of neighbor is different. The love of neighbor indeed is a process of meeting needs. It's a process of meeting needs. This is deep. It requires trust, which is developed through a mixture of time, commitment, meeting one another's needs, and all those things. But I wanna talk about three different areas of our life in which we need to love our neighbor, to move into the needs of our neighbors, okay? So let's talk first about one another. And what I mean by this, first, loving one another, what I mean by this is the church family. And yes, this is gonna extend beyond the walls of this church. I'm not just saying central hope. I'm just talking about Christians in general. So to love one another is something that we are called to do. And this is not easy. And here's why it's not easy to love one another. You, me, all of us, even if we are redeemed by the blood of the lamb, we still sin. We're gonna hurt one another. We're gonna make each other incredibly mad. (laughs) That's life. That's life in a fallen world. And one of the hardest things about loving one another is to acknowledge that you indeed have sinned. There's two reasons why loving one another is really hard. A lack of repentance and a lack of forgiveness. One of the, one of the things that I thought about probably, probably about 15 years ago, and I don't know if I still have resolution, but if you think about the Lord's Prayer, there's a phrase in the Lord's Prayer that says, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven our sinners, or, or those who've sinned against us, or debtors, or transgressors. And I thought about this. You know, I've been, in the church, I've, I've been in the church my whole life, going on 40 years. And I can't tell, I could probably put on, on one hand the number of times, maybe, maybe two times, where I've actually experienced someone moving towards me and forgiving me. What's up with that? We're sinning against each other with regularity. And yet there's a lack of repentance and then there's a lack of forgiveness. A lack of repentance and a lack of forgiveness to me says we're not loving one another very well. The one thing, there's one thing that Jesus says following his teaching on prayer that that should wake us up. It's this. The one thing that he continued teaching in this teaching is forgiveness. He says this right after he teaches the Lord's Prayer. He says, for if you forgive other their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. You get this whole Lord's Prayer, and what does he focus on immediately? Forgiveness. Friends, to love one another means to repent and forgive And that is not easy. I need forgiveness. You need forgiveness. 
So friends, to love one another means to repent and to forgive. Now there's a whole story of what does it mean to forgive. I'm not going into that uh, uh, other than what I'm about to tell you. To forgive is this, to allow God to be the judge, not you. You don't take matters into your own hand. That doesn't mean you trust the person who's hurt you. I'm not saying, oh yeah, you just jump right back into a relationship with an abuser. <laughs> no, but you allow God to deal with the abuser in that case. Forgiveness is saying, God, you are God. You are the one who has the authority in this situation, and I'm gonna let you do what you do, and I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna plan retribution. I'm not gonna go after them. I'm gonna let you do you. You do you. So we gotta love one another by repenting and forgiving. That's the first kind of category of loving neighbor. The second one is loving our children. If you think about it, the most vulnerable of our population are children. And so we are called to meet the needs of the children who are most vulnerable, to care for them. We are to fight for the rights of the unborn. We are to care for the kids that make a lot of joyful noise in the midst of this church. We are to think about them. We are to plan for them. We are to teach the doctrines of our faith. We are to pray with them and for them. We are to care for them. We are to educate them in the Lord. We are to educate them in what it means to walk with the Lord each and every day. To love our neighbor means to care for our children. We must do this. Lastly, love of neighbor actually means loving our neighbor. Now, when I lived in Orlando, Kimberly and I lived in a townhouse that was squashed between two other townhomes. And one of the unfortunate realities of living between two other townhomes is that you can hear everything going on in the other rooms or in the other townhomes. And when I mean everything, I mean everything. I remember thinking, I've got to love my neighbors. <laughs> I hear everything that goes on in there. I got to do that. And in that moment, I thought to myself, I would wrap... I kid you not, I thought this. I would rather go to Iran where there's a threat against my life for being a Christian than walk next door to my neighbor who I hear everything about and say, hey, hey what's going on? We're the Andersons. What's your name? It's a sad reality when, when we are reluctant to actually love our neighbors, the people that we come into contact with, the people that we live next to, work with, play with, but this is what we've been called to do to move into the people that God has providentially brought into our lives and to meet their needs. This is what it means to love our neighbor. Now, I teach this in our membership class, and I'll teach it to you again. There are three different categories that we have to think about when we love our neighbors, three different areas. We need to think through emotional needs. We need to think through physical needs, and we need to think through spiritual needs. So you've got emotional, physical, and spiritual needs. Um, I'll just briefly think about it. emotional needs. I mean, you can just think of your life, the emotional needs that you have. Most of us have the emotional need to be connected to one another, to laugh together, to play together, to eat together. Like We have this. If we're, if we're isolated for a long period of time, man, there's this emotional need, this social need that just wells up in our hearts and we suffer. Your neighbors need that as well as you do. And so to love your neighbor means... To, to enter into the lives of those around you and to consider what are the emotional needs that they have. Secondly, I think most of us understand that we all have physical needs, the physical needs to be clothed, 
the physical needs to have a roof or, or protection over our heads and those sorts of things. And this is the category which we often think of meeting the needs of our neighbors, and that's good. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that, but again, the love is a process of meeting need, which includes physical needs. But lastly, love is also seen in the needs, or meeting the needs of those um, spiritually. People might acknowledge the existence of God. They look at creation. They grew up in church. They might say, yeah, there's a God, but they don't know that God. And if they don't know that God, how can they know it? Through you. Through you. You, you know, and, and that makes people scared because we live in a world that says, you do you, and that's fine. And I think there's wisdom on how we can do that. But a big part of loving our neighbors is helping them understand and see the spiritual needs that they have. Do they know the God that is revealed to them, to, revealed in scriptures? They need to know that. And so it, it, bringing the knowledge of the, the triune God to their presence is meeting their needs spiritually. There are ways we can think about doing this, but this is what it means. So, be loved in love. The function of love is loving God, which means knowing God, worshiping God, trusting God. It also means loving our neighbor, our neighbors around us right here inside the church, our, our children that enter into the church, and then our, our real neighbors. Look, if you've ever read anything about the early Christian church, you know that they were under constant persecution. We're talking three to 400 years, if not more. I mean, church has probably been persecuted forever. But serious persecution for three to 400 years. Yet despite the persecution, despite authorities coming in and saying, we need to stop this, the church continued to grow and continued to have influence and continued to thrive. And that's because these people understood their what? They knew that they were called by God they, they, they knew they were called by God to love God and love neighbor, and they did it. These small groups of persecuted people turned into the most influential group in all of the world. They understood their what. They understood what they were called to do. Central Hope, what is our what? If we lose sight of our what, there's a chance that we will not survive. But if we keep the what in front of us, to be loved and loved, I think also we too, like the early church, will thrive. By God's grace, indeed, he will do this. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we give thanks to you that you have not left us without a roadmap for how we are called to live. Oh Lord, we ask that you would continue to grant us grace that we might increasingly Align our lives with the way that you have called us to live, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We give thanks that you are the one that makes this possible, that you have loved us even while we were still sinners and changed us because of your spirit. Amen.